Hello, and welcome to All Things Marketing and Education. My name is Ilana Leone, and I've devoted my career to helping education brands build their brand awareness and engagement. Each week, I sit down with educators, edtech entrepreneurs, and experts in educational marketing and community building. All of them will share their successes and failures using social media, inbound marketing or content marketing, and community building. I'm excited to guide you on your journey to transform your marketing efforts into something that provides consistent value and ultimately improves the lives of your audience. Hello, and welcome to another episode of All Things Marketing and Education. I'm Ilana Leone, and I'm the CEO and founder of Leone Consulting Group, which is officially five years old in February. I can't believe it. Um, today, I have the pleasure of sitting down with my friend, Dr. Beth Holland. I've known Beth from my days at Edutopia, where she blogged, and I don't know, it, it's been almost 10 years, Beth. <laughs> I know, I would. But it is. It's been almost 10 years since we started working together. Yeah. And then I looked and scrolled at all your blog posts. And I'm like, geez, you have like every year nuggets of wisdom around digital equity, educational leadership, tech integration. They were some of our most always popular blogs. Um, and I just love learning from you over the years and getting to know you in person at conferences. And last time we talked, I, I just had this moment saying, gosh, she's so inspiring. She'd be a great guest for the show. So here you are. Um, a little bit more official about Beth, because I know she won't talk in detail about who she is. A lot of our guests are too humble. So this is my time to gush about you. <laughs> Go ahead. Beth is a partner at the Learning Accelerator, and I'll let her tell you more about what specifically the Learning Accelerator is, but it's a national nonprofit doing some really great things in education. And I love all of their resources. They're all entirely free and they're vetted and they have great research embedded into them. So we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, Beth leads the organization's research and measurement initiatives. And she brings over 25 years of experience working as an educator, a researcher, in specific with a lens of equity and communication within K-12 public school systems. So that is a lot and I'm not even done yet. <laughs> but she's had a role at the Consortium of School Networking, COSIN, and that is a great organization. And we'll put that in the show notes for you all as well. Lots of free research-based resources as well. But over there, she led the Digital Equity and Rural Initiatives. She completed a postdoctoral research fellowship on a project funded by the U.S. Department of Education's Ready to Learn Initiative at the University of Rhode Island. And she's worked at as a teacher, an administrator, a professional learning developer in schools across the country. So I love that she has the hands-on experience of being in the classroom with lots of those roles, those various roles as a stakeholder in education, but then has this really formal background in education research. And you're just such a, a student's always so curious about what really works. And let's it's not enough to just say what works, let's show how it works. And that's very an edutopia mindset too. <laughs> George Lucas was always like, well, there's amazing things happening in education. Let's make sure it's sound and there's research around it and that schools can actually adapt them. But more importantly, they can see it. They can see when kids light up. So I love that about her. Um, she's got all sorts of degrees, but I'm at, 
really saying this because it adds context to her expertise and know that she's put in decades and decades in, of sweat equity to really understanding the space. So she holds an education doctorate in entrepreneurial leadership and education from Johns Hopkins University, a master's degree in technology, innovation, and education from Harvard, and a bachelor's of science degree in communications from Northwestern. Woo, I feel like a slacker. <laughs> so um, I'm going to let Beth just introduce herself. But today, Beth is going to talk to us about all things equity in specifically K-12 education. And then I'm hoping that we can get into what you as listeners, either an educator in the classroom or maybe you're in a district role um, or supporting teachers, or if you're an ed tech company and you're trying to figure out, you know, what is equity? What's the state of equity? But more importantly, what can I do as an ed tech company or as a leader in an ed tech company to help and not hinder this? So welcome, Beth, to the podcast. I am so excited you're here. And please just tell the audience a little bit more about you, something I missed, something I got wrong. <laughs> no, no, um, it's great. It's so fun to be back uh, working with you again, because I think you were my first editor at Edutopia when I first started blogging, and it was about 10 years ago. Um, I might have been. I, I tend I to overstep my bounds sometimes. So I was in, I ran social and community, but I love content. So yeah. I think sometimes Alan would come to me or Betty. So. No, I mean, I remember working with you in those early days of, you know, back when I was actually known as like the iPad person, because it was the early days of iPads. And I was working with EdTech teacher at the time and really trying to figure out like, okay, great, we have this thing. Now what? Um, what are we going to do with it? I used to actually introduce myself be like, I'm the now what person, you know, schools and districts have just rolled out, you know, a thousand iPads, a thousand Chromebooks. And then they go, okay, now what do we do with it? And that's when I showed up. I'm like, okay, I'm the now what person. Um, so, you know, and I've, as you said, I've been a classroom teacher. I've been working in professional learning. I, I actually, the technology piece is always sort of interesting. I graduated with, from my undergrad. Um, I think I'd seen the internet once. I realized that also dates me. Uh, and I remember I wrote a paper that said that email would never succeed as a form of communication. I was clearly wrong. So as much as I have my moments of being right, I have, I'm, when I'm wrong, I'm really wrong. Uh, I had a professor one time tell me that I was absolutely brilliant about 10% of the time. She's like, the other 90, I have no idea where you're coming from. It makes you kind of likable. Um, so I'll hold on to my, to my 10%. I was, it was not a 10% moment when I said that email would never succeed. Uh, but I guess uh, to fill you in a little bit more on the work, you know, where I am now. So I do lead our research and measurement work at the Learning Accelerator. And as you said, we're a national nonprofit. We like to consider ourselves an intermediary in the field. So we see that there's lots and lots of work that great organizations are doing. But a lot of times the work is all happening sort of in pockets. And what we try to do is bring all of these different partners and organizations and groups together so that we can all learn collectively. And you know, from a research and measurement perspective, you know, I work directly with districts. Sometimes they have really interesting problems and they're looking for help in, you know, deeply understanding them or trying to, you know, bring a measurement aspect in. So right now, for example, I'm working with Lindsay Unified School District out in California, and we're doing a measurement study of their residency program, where much like, you know, doctors have residents, Lindsay built a residency program where 
it's really fascinating. They said, okay, we want to identify people from our own community and we're going to help them get credentialed and get their um, undergraduate degrees and work through curriculum. And then instead of just like throwing a new teacher in the classroom, they take this resident and they pair them with a mentor teacher. And then that mentor teacher really helps them start to build their skills and capacity and to understand like, what does it mean to be an educator in Lindsay? And so they get this whole year before they'll then go be a first year teacher the next year. So we're working on a study right now to understand the effects and the value of that residency program right now for really building up the um, kind of the human capital within the district. Um, you know, I'm working with another a Kent school district in Washington state on helping their research team build more capacity as they're measuring student progress. So sometimes we're working directly with districts and then Sometimes we work on really just interesting, broader challenges. We're launching a brand new project right now to understand the effects of giving teachers access to really high quality professional learning and high quality technology to see, you know, how does that lead to more creative learning experiences for students? And when students are able to engage in these more creative learning experiences, like what's the effect of that on their learning in general and some of their outcome measures? So you know, we do lots of interesting measurement challenges, working with districts, working with partners. Um, I'm not sure I can keep going or I can stop there. <laughs> I think that that is good. And it just, when you were talking, I'm like, gosh, you have a good job. You have a really interesting <laughs> fun job. And not many do. people have the resources or the capability to really examine those challenging questions. And I like how you're approaching it from the pipeline too, because we have a teacher shortage mm -hmm. and we do not graduate educators with the experience that they need. They are fully unprepared when they get to the classroom. And so you're t talking about that in like the beginning stages of, you know, what education is, but then you're also saying, well, what really moves a needle in learning and engagement? And what is the learning we should be teaching um, students to make sure that they are prepared for the real world, whatever that means for them. So I like, it seems like you're all over the spectrum and you're answering lots of very, very hard questions. But what resonated with me too, is that you talking about how education is siloed and it is i mean i love like you're trying to not redo what's been done but try to help maybe connect the dots as well mm -hmm. because we don't tend to talk to each other very much in education and that's one of the reasons why i started this podcast too because i feel like even in the ed tech specter we don't talk as much as we should with educators and we don't really know how to talk with each other educators don't know how to talk effectively to ed tech too that's just one part of the ecosystem yeah <laughs> It's funny, I, when I did my master's degree, um, so I'll date myself, you know, this was back in 2000, like early 2002. And when I was doing that, I took this class and it was all about this idea of this, the theory of, or the synthesis of theory, design and practice. And I always do this and like make a triangle because we kept drawing triangles everywhere in that class where we said, you know, too often what ends up happening is, you know, you might have researchers and the researchers are incredibly knowledgeable in pedagogical theory, um, understanding like, you know, what's really driving how learning should occur, right? But researchers then are often devoid from the realities of the classroom practice, right? I always think about some of the times I had a wonderful student years ago who 
you know, it was a really little kid and he would come down into the computer lab and he was so small that when he sat in the chair, his feet didn't touch the ground and he had the Velcro shoes and, you know, they blinked when he lit. He was a little guy. He was only five. And the realities of teaching a student whose feet don't touch the ground and like Velcro or shoelaces is way more interesting than any potential pedagogical theory. There's that disconnect. And then you bring technology in and you have the design aspect. And so does the design of the tool actually meet the reality of the classroom practice and does it have sound educational theory behind it? And so somewhere there's a sweet spot between those three elements when you start to have things that work really, really well. Um, I always think of the technology tools where they might have a great intent, but the learning curve is so steep that you can't ever necessarily really embrace how it works. You know, very, very powerful tool, but oh my gosh, it takes me so long to learn. Whereas I always like to brag on my friends at Book Creator. I love, and I, you know, I always love the way that they narrowed it down. They're like, there's three buttons, you know, push a, push a plus button, push an I button. Everything is there. Un, unlimited pop, you know, possibilities but they understood the realities of having a child or having maybe a teacher who's not as familiar with technology be able to use a tool and have it quickly have an impact in the classroom. Um, yeah, so that's there's... so important. I think from the ed tech perspective, I just want to point out what she's saying is simplicity. You know, really, I mean, there's ways that you can add on and make your tool more advanced, but really focus on simplicity and making sure that it complements what the teacher is trying to do in the classroom for learning objectives, learning outcomes. You know, it's not just a, a bell and whistle. Oh, you know, let's get some students' attention mm -hmm. right away. You know, it seems like really what are we trying to do first and then how can we use technology to effectively complement it. And I think we'll get into a lot of that um, for all of you educators listening of how to choose tech tools with evaluation in mind, um, really outcomes in mind, what things to look for, and specifically as it relates to equity and reaching all learners. But before we do, I think we should just open up with what is digital equity? <laughs> and you know, I think a lot of people talk about it in different ways. Um, they like achievement gap, close the gap, digital equity gap, divide gap, all these things. So I think what I'm going to do is just talk about a definition that I actually got on your website. So I know that you're not going to refute this, at least, <laughs> or you might add some color to it. But um, So the National Digital Inclusion Association have a definition of what digital equity is, and they define it as a condition in which all individuals and communities have the information technology capacity needed for full participation in our society, democracy, and economy. And again, this is a bit of a broader definition and not just specifically for K-12 education, but it, it has more ramifications too. So they're really talking about society, democracy, and economy. Digital equity is necessary for civil and cultural participation, employment, lifelong learning, and access to essential services. So would you add anything to that definition since you're more of the expert than I am? I just copy and pasted it from a website. <laughs> oh, I think the biggest piece is understanding that there's a difference between when we think about digital equity versus digital access. And a lot of the conversation, particularly over the last few years, has been focused on the access piece. And it's incredibly important. Right? I'm not denying that at all, because if we don't have access to devices and we don't have access to high-speed internet, then it's really hard to continue the conversation any further. But where 
I think it's important for educators to think about and for you know leaders and to and technology developers is to then start asking some other questions to move towards that digital equity space of saying things like not only do our students have access but do they have ownership mm-hmm. you know can they actually configure the device to meet their needs um, can they actually make sure that they have the tools and the resources that they think are most important. You know, do they own the way that things are set up? And I've had this conversation in particular lately with some independent school folks where there's a sense of like, oh, we're one-to-one. We gave every single kid a device. We've made it to digital equity. And then a challenge becomes if the only device you ever have access to is something owned by the district and not by you. That means that you're constantly in this like borrowed space. It's not your space. And you may have students from more affluent families where they can go buy whatever other device they need, right? And they may be able to say something like, yeah, I know I have filtered internet on my school issued you know, laptop. Let's just use it generic. It doesn't matter what it is. You know, I don't, I'm not filtered. They're not monitoring things. What does it mean to know that you're not on a monitored device? And I'm not saying don't monitor. I'm saying, let's just think about the implications here. Um, You know, but do they have that ability to really own and configure what it is? And is that device really sufficient for what they need? Um, You know, I talked to uh, district leaders at least. And again, that idea, oh, we gave every single kid a device. All right. But what happens when you have some kids that are like way into the arts and there are so many really cool tools that they could be using, but they don't have the processing power. Or maybe you have a kid that's really into music and they could, they might want to be able to like plug instruments in and do music recording, but that may not be possible on this district issued device. Or thinking about it from a STEM perspective, there's all kinds of science and engineering tools that may or may not work in different ways. So if there isn't that sufficiency and there isn't that ownership, you know, that's another piece coming towards equity. And then a piece that's really stuck with me over the years and a district leader made this comment to me. Um, We were talking about the idea of like, how do we deal with the sort of like the opportunity side of digital equity. You know, do kids have the opportunity to be doing advanced computer science or advanced coding or robotics or all those things? And this district leader actually said to me, you know, one thing, if you really want my students of color to be super interested in these things, he said, stop pushing your white makerspace. And I really wish we had been in a video conference and not on a phone conference when he said that, because I would have liked to have seen people's reactions. But then we really dug into it and said, wow, are the opportunities we're creating, are the tools that we're promoting, do our students really feel motivated by them? And do they see themselves in it? And do they think that it honors their identity? And so I started doing some digging and there's a professor at the University of Texas in Austin, um, Dr. Um, S. Craig Watkins. He's actually on sabbatical at MIT this year. But so Dr. Watkins is somewhere between Austin and MIT. And he wrote this really amazing book in 2015, I think, called The Digital Edge, The Online Lives of Black and Latino Youth. And what was fascinating is he took his team of researchers and they embedded in a high school for a year. And they really started talking to the kids about what is it that they like about technology and where do they find it to have value? And a lot of the things that surfaced and remember timing of this, it might've been sooner. um, They were really into the iPod touch at the time. 
They really liked having the notes app. And yet they had teachers who were constantly saying like, oh, put that toy away. And these kids are like, well, if you just let me take my notes, I have everything with me. Um, there was an advanced game design class that was being taught. And the kids were super into video game design, except for the fact that the teacher who was teaching it didn't know anything about game design and was incredibly well intended, but just didn't have the background and chose a curriculum that was supposed to be for middle schoolers. So you've got these kids that are super interested, but they don't have the right opportunity for them. And so it really raised a lot of questions when we think about digital equity beyond just, again, that access, but you know, what are the kinds of opportunities and how do they honor you know, the identities and the voices and the histories and the cultures of our students? You know, do they see themselves in the tools and the applications? Um, we can go on from there. It's just, I think there's a, a set of conditions around it that we often don't think about. I guess the last piece too even is, you know, do the policies that we have in place lead towards equity or do they undermine our equity initiatives? So as a concrete example, kids have phones in their pockets, which can do amazing things. They can be translators, they could be dictionaries, they could record notes. Um, I remember when iPads first came out and it was so exciting to like take a picture of a whiteboard or a marker board so you can take your notes with you. And how do we make sure that we're honoring the capabilities that we have instead of saying, oh, put that thing away or, oh, turn your phone off. Um, or I had, I remember some teachers saying, well, if they take a picture of the whiteboard, then they won't take notes. And it's like, no, 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 let them take notes on the whiteboard. Um, so I think it's definitely a broad, when we think about it in a K-12 space, really starting to think about what are the opportunities our kids are having? What are the types of instructional practices we're putting in place? And then what are the systems that are surrounding them in the classroom and how does that support their learning? I guess that, that might've been a longer definition. Yeah, I mean, there were moments in your talk where I was just getting goosebumps. And I just wanna tell you, because when we said about white maker spaces, I was like, oh, you know? And I, that's why I love this podcast because <laughs> it helps mind shift. We don't get exposed to these things. And we sometimes only think with our own lens, right? Or I think what you said even too, in the beginning when you started teaching, you started teaching how you were taught, right? Mm -hmm. You know, and that's that's sometimes what we do as educators, you know, we come in or, or even like, I'm coming in, I, I, I'm doing what I've been taught. And some you just don't have the mind or the exposure to really say, is this right? Does this make learning relevant for all of my learners? And I think we'll get into some of like the opportunities and systems when we talk a little bit more because every single time, but how do I do this? And how do I do this if I don't come from the background of my, of my students? And if I'm an ed tech person, how do I make sure that my product actually does attract all types of learners, if, if that's even possible. I have all these questions. <laughs> um, I remember just having this moment, it was a couple years ago, and I was working with a fabulous group of educators in Skokie, Illinois, and we were having this conversation about embracing, you know, bringing in technology and getting really comfortable with it. And I had a teacher who said, look, you know, at the end of the day, I just, I don't care as much about the technology. I don't want to have to just sit down and work with it. And I had one of those moments when my filter fell off and I just said, well, it's okay because it's not about you. And I realized in retrospect, there's much better ways to have framed it. And she was incredibly good natured and it was a fabulous group, but we had a really amazing conversation at that point of saying, you know, 
as educators, we're, we were good at school, right? Like no one goes into teaching because they were bad at school. Usually like there was some element you were good at it. And so now it becomes a real challenge to say, well, it's not about me. It's not about what worked for me. It's not about what my experience is. It's about how do I help these kids at this moment in time to make sure that they're getting what they need to be successful and the way in which they want to succeed. And that's really hard, but I think that's when you see great educators, I think that's what they're really good at is saying, it's not about me, it's about these kids. And I know how to support them in the best possible ways. And I'm going to keep trying things until I can find the best way to meet their needs. Yeah, that's such a great point around shifting the benefit. Sometimes you go in and go, okay, of course they'll like it because I like it. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, and there's that assumption. And I would say that, you know, design thinking does this really, really well. So if any of you educators out there or or from the ed tech side have ever used design thinking practices, you have to check your ego at the door. Sometimes we emotionally get attached to ideas because we like love this lesson plan or we love this feature. And then we user test it and they don't even like it at all. They hate it, in fact, and it doesn't meet their needs. (laughs) So we have to take that time to listen to them and figure it out. But how do we begin as, you know, if you're an educator trying to implement technology in the classroom, their jobs are hard enough in the pandemic. I can't imagine adding another layer into it, but they certainly care and want to make sure that the technology they do use furthers learning and includes all learners. Now we also have, you know, remote, hybrid, in-person, all of these things that are still kind of ebbing and flowing in education. How do they get started trying to figure out what technology to plug and play? I know that's a really hard question, but you might have some tips as it relates to equity and access. I mean, I think the first piece is always going back to what does great instructional design do? And if we think about great instructional design, it always starts with the learning objective. Like, what do I want my students to really be able to demonstrate at the end of the day? You know, what's, what's the core understanding that I want them to have? And we could look at it through, you know, like Wiggins and McTie's teaching, um, no, teaching for understanding with Stone Weiske. Wiggins and McTie were looking at understanding by design. Sorry. I had two things at the same, at the same time, but you know, the word understanding is really fascinating because it's not what do you want them to do or what skill or what discrete content area, but what is the bigger understanding? And if we can start with that, you know, I really want my students to understand um, an example that I often used uh, when thinking about it from like a historical perspective. We're, I did an American history class and the teacher said, I really want my students to understand what does it mean to come from a society that was born from revolution, which is a really big understanding. And we were using the choices program, the facing history in ourselves piece. So you have to ask a lot of really deep questions. Now to understand what it means to come from revolution means, of course you then have all of these discrete skills and competencies that you have to develop because you need to be able to, you know, deconstruct historical events. You need to be able to synthesize across time periods. You need to be able to engage with different kinds of text. Like all of those are really discrete things, but it drives back to that bigger understanding. So now if we start to think about what is the technology that comes into play First off, the kids have lots of ideas, right? 
like they'll be really interested in lots of things. And if your objective is for them to demonstrate an understanding, you can ask them how they want to do it. Now they may need some support. I remember doing a project with sixth graders years, years, many years ago. They wanted to design their own video game. And I had no idea how we were going to do that. But I said, sure. Like, let's, that's great. Let's make a video game. And so then we had to do some research together and say, well, how do you make a video game? And in the end, they never actually designed the video game, but they did the pitch for the video game as if they were selling it to Nintendo. So they had to have all the thinking behind it. But I think their, their technology at the time ended up being like big butcher block paper and markers. But they demonstrated their understanding of their global warming concepts. They demonstrated their understanding of, you know, what is the logic of a video game, right? But th sometimes that technology piece will come from having that really clearly defined objective. Like, what is the understanding? What are the objective? What are the knowledge, skills, and competencies? And then say, okay, well, how are we going to get there? Um, and then I think from there, different tools will come to the surface, yeah, when you were talking, I was just thinking about why don't we give our students as much freedom in terms of choice? I know that there are some technical and financial uh, ramifications sometimes in the classroom that we can't give them access to everything, but there is so much freely accessible tools. And I love that you were sitting side by side with them as a learner as well and saying, you know, you're, you're going to have to figure this out too. Like I, when I have intern programs come in, a lot of the times I don't know how to do it. I said, why don't you think about it and we can figure it out together. I don't know. I'm not an expert because things are moving too quickly to be an expert in anything and demonstrating that and giving them the, the voice and the choice to say, well, hey, I have an idea. Maybe I can do a podcast mm -hmm. because I want to do it from the perspective of somebody fighting in the revolution or whatever it may be. Right. And you're like, wow, I never thought of that. But sure, if you can demonstrate this, go for it. Yeah. Um Lawrence Reif, who I think he's now, he was an Apple Distinguished Educator. And this was years ago when Apple did those like one best thing books. Like, mm -hmm. remember those? They were in iBooks. And so Lawrence taught Shakespeare to high school and middle school kids. And the one thing I always loved about the way he would use technology is he said, I want my students to be able to use evidence from the text. And so he would have this series of questions or this series of ideas he wanted the students to be able to show that they understood. And he would say, you could do this however you want, as long as you use evidence from the text. And I remember him in a at a conference showing the products that his kids had made, and it was around Shakespeare. I think they were doing Macbeth, and he had everything from graphic novels to what would the, uh, the it was pre-streaming. We still had CDs, but like, what would the CD jacket cover look for, look like for the album to Macbeth, like the music I think the musical or something. And so they had to come up with, well, I would use all of these songs and here's why. Like, and they had to tie it to the evidence in the text, right? They had to be able to say, okay, well, I would pick this song at this moment because here's what was happening. And so his kids were able to really demonstrate that skill, but they did it in whatever way worked for them. 
Yeah, I think that's the key too, is tapping into students are prior knowledge potentially, but also their passion and making it relevant to them. And that's why I love really when we talk about effective tech integration or even things like project-based learning, a real life application, you know, and what you do matters. And when kids ask you, why are we even learning this? They will never ask that because it's really clear, right? Um, so why don't we talk a little bit about what's going on now? We've had a couple of years in a pandemic. So this incredibly challenging time period for education, we educators across the nation and, and the world were forced to say, okay, how do we quickly get up to speed with technology we potentially may have never used before? Can you walk me through just from your researcher eye? I think it would be incredibly fascinating to see how you've seen technology infrastructure and potentially access increase or used in different ways over the couple of years? Like maybe some things that you thought were really cool, but maybe some things that you think that you might want to caution as well? I think there's a couple of things. I, the first one is the, especially the early days of the pandemic is it did shine a huge light on issues of the digital divide of digital access, right? And all of a sudden, you know, there were roughly 15 million kids that did not have internet access at home and didn't ha and about 9 million of them didn't have a device. So that was approximately, I think it was about 30% of public school students who are now in a remote learning situation and they have no remote learning. And that, that has been, that number as of the last report I read has been decreased by 20%. But we're still talking millions of kids who do not have internet access at home and don't have a device that could connect to it, even if they did have it. And so from a pandemic perspective, what's come out of it is the Digital Equity Act that's been proposed by um, Senator Murray from Washington State. There's massive investments that's coming in in terms of broadband funding. Um, E-rate, which is how schools can and libraries can get funding for internet access and devices, has been updated so that it can start to cover internet access at home. It didn't used to be allowed to do that. I think we've seen great work with public-private partnerships, making sure that you know schools are working with you know private companies, trying to make sure again that kids have access outside of school. All of those things are happening. I think there's been increased familiarity with platforms that can lend themselves really well to blended learning, right? So we can say, well, these things worked really well online and these things worked really well in person. I think a challenge that's come of that is this retrenchment to normal. And one of the things that we've been really focused on at the Learning Accelerator is how do we see this as a moment where we can say, it's not about going back, but it's about making its way and moving forward. And so we have a project right now called the Strategy Lab where we're working with districts across the country to say, how can we use virtual and hybrid models to lead towards more equitable learning in the future? That we don't wanna just go back, that we want to take advantage of standing up a virtual academy or standing up a hybrid model where kids might be able to take some classes online and some in person. How do we really take advantage of this moment so that we're thinking about school in a different way? And, and with more comfort with the tools, I think there are more possibilities. The real question is, how do we make sure that we're thinking ahead and not trying to say, okay, let's go back? Um, another 
piece that I'm watching very carefully is the advancement of becoming comfortable with adaptive platforms. So things that range from, you know, Nuia Map and iReady to Dreambox. I always want to call it Dragonbox, but it's, there's no dragons. Dreambox Math, uh, Assistments, Carnegie Math. There's all these different platforms that have content, have curriculum, can provide direct immediate feedback to students. And I think that there's great potential in starting to shift conversations away from a deficit perspective on, oh, we've measured learning here, we measured it here, and we see these gaps. And instead to be able to say, we have these platforms that can start measuring student progress over time. Where are we seeing patterns of growth? And how do we celebrate those patterns and learn from them so that we can share more bright spots with our colleagues and see if we can advance learning for more kids. And that has a great potential. It also has the, you know, the equity side effect of what happens when that's all the instruction that kids are getting. And potentially you have some kids that are getting, you know, way more face-to-face instruction or the project-based authentic kinds of learning experiences versus just, I have my headphones on, I'm just plugging through curriculum. It can go both ways. I think there's a warning to it. Uh, We're actually having a conversation next week with Innovate EDU and a handful of educators about is data neutral? If we're collecting all of this data from all of these platforms, what does it really mean and what questions would we be asking as we're looking at it with our students? Because that's another equity challenge as we start to bring more and more tools in that are collecting more and more data how are we using that data and how are we thinking about it and how are we helping our teachers and students to think about it? And I would say to your ed tech companies on that, how transparent are you being about the ways in which you're collecting data, the algorithms behind the platforms that could be interpreting that data and where that data is going? Because I think that's the next really big equity issue that a lot of us are starting to watch and to have some concerns about. Yeah. So I'll, Every time you speak, I'm like, oh, so much to unpack there, and, there and it's amazing. I mean, that you means stop that you're, me sooner. you're just bringing it. And I want my job is just to pause and go, wow. And two, bring out some points, too, that might resonate with our audience, too. I think when you talk about the deficit mentality around the learning gap, you know, all the learning loss, all of that stuff that just makes our ears hurt at this point, right? It's it's scare tactics. Sure, there was some learning loss in types of ways, but it didn't have the context needed. And we didn't, like when you talked about data being neutral, is it neutral? Data inherently is biased. We need to understand the context in which all of this is gathered. And what groups are we inherently talking about and leaving out? Right. So there was a lot of like, well, you know, we actually found that this type of child flourished in online learning. And Mm -hmm. so I didn't hear as much about that, but it just became uh, another scare tactic to say, educators, you aren't doing your job well enough. And by the way, when you get back to in person, you've got a lot of catching up to do. What kind of a welcome is that after they've been suffering and doing everything they can do? I love your idea of shining a spotlight on what is working moving in there and then that is participatory learning it's wow there are some things that we can shine a spotlight on and move forward so i just wanted to point that out because that's a really different mind shift to look at something incredibly complex and empower people instead of kind of say okay we got you you're gonna have to work harder when you get back 
Well, we actually, as an organization at the Learning Accelerator, like the term unfinished learning instead of learning loss, because it allows us to take an asset-based approach and it acknowledges the fact that not every kid had the opportunity and experience. Things were unfinished because they didn't have the resources to do the learning. And so with the measurement aspects of this, and we did this study in Lindsay Unified School District last year, and I can, all of our work is public if you want it. Uh, and we're working with a few other districts and we actually have a how-to guide for schools and districts that wanna take this approach. But we started measuring progress over time. So think about like the slope of a line and we wanted to know where are we seeing greater growth? And in Lindsay in particular, we saw growth in places that nationally didn't. You know, the homeless students classified as homeless and migrant at the K-8 level made a lot of progress. We saw really good growth trajectories. So then we could ask the questions and said, well, what was going on there? And we found out there were additional layers of support. There was a program called Healthy Start that made sure that all of the kids were, you know, fed and clothed and they had access and someone, they came back on campus early. There was an early cohort model. There was a lot of great support. And then it raised the question of how do we scale this to more kids? Because they did make progress. And if we had only looked at say the average scores and we took a deficit mindset, then we would have said, oh, look, these kids, their scores are lower. But instead we were able to say, look how much they gained. Oh, so well said. So well said. There's so much gains that happened mm -hmm. and so much more relationship and collaboration between people that don't typically do that. Uh, gosh, there was so much that was done well during the pandemic, but not ignoring that, you know, there are some things that I love your term unfinished. Mm -hmm. They're not lost, you know, we, lost. Can build, we can build upon it. And it was purely just access or resources or things or things just learning curves and jumping into these things. Okay. So I know we could talk about this forever and ever and ever. And you have just dosed us with a ton of wisdom. And for all of you trying to take notes right now and all the programs that she's talking about, we will follow up with Beth, get all the links and put them in our show notes. And I'll provide the link to the show notes at the end. Um, but I know that your organization has a guide around digital equity. And I remember going through it going, wow, this is free. And there's so much research in it. And it's very practical. So a lot of the questions I was asking is like, yes, Beth, but how do we do it? And you know, how um, this gets into more practical things of like, you know, how do you create a working group to really establish what you want to learn together that's specific to your district or your school? So do you want to add a little bit about what they can find in this guide? And again, sure. we'll put it in the show notes. It's 100% free. And like mm -hmm. Beth, talked about all of the things on her website. They don't ask you to get an email or anything like that. It's a, it's no no catch. No. It was like when I would go to Edutopia and we would do exhibit booths and we're like, yeah, we're free. They're like, no, no, but there's a catch. And people would not even take a pencil because they're like, if I take this pencil, <laughs> it's free, people. <laughs> I still have an Edutopia pencil. Uh, we are, we're, you know, we're philanthropically funded, but we really believe as part of our mission that we should be about equitable access to knowledge. So you'll never have to fill in a form or everything is Creative Commons licensed and available. With the digital equity guide, it's been, that it took, I will, I'll be honest, it took over two years to write. It took, it was a long time in the thinking. I had a fabulous thought partner, Haley Larkins, who is now a fellow with the Office of Education Technology. I'm still sad that 
she's not working with us anymore, but she's an amazing fellow and a great resource. And we really had to take a step back and say, there's the access question is almost easy, right? How do we get access to kids? And organizations like COSIN and CETA have done an amazing job talking about bandwidth and ways to get internet to kids and how do you get devices? But what we dug into is we wanted to think about it almost a dual track approach where we said, what is the ideal classroom experience look like if digital equity was at the forefront? And we used our learning framework that we have at the Learning Accelerator as the lens through which to examine it. So we said, how do we make sure that instructional practices are targeted and relevant? And what does that mean from a digital equity perspective? You know, how do we make sure that students are actively engaging with their learning? And what does that mean? Um, how do we make sure it's socially connected? I think the social connection piece is often left out, but it's so critically important for learning, both with technology and without, that kids have that social learning. And, and then the last piece is, is it growth-oriented, meaning really meaningful learning experiences not measured by seat time, that we're showing progress, we're developing skills. So that was our one track. And then we looked instead at the same time and said, for these classroom practices to occur, a set of system conditions need to be in place. And what are those system conditions? And then we took a step back out and said, well, there needs to be a really great vision for what it means to learn with technology and what it means to teach with technology. And then we have to have change management processes and we have to have professional learning and we have to think about our materials and tools and our policies and how we communicate. So we broke the guide into these two pieces of saying, here's what it looks like at the classroom practice level. And then here's the set of conditions that need to be in place so that those practices can actually occur. And all of that is wrapped up into our guide with lots and lots of concrete examples and concrete strategies uh, there's a self-assessment tool for districts to be able to sit down as a team and say, like, where do we think we are in all of this? And then how might we move forward so that we can start to make some, some progress and some changes? And there's a reflection and planning workbook, Gosh. which is also there to help. That's great. That's great. Um, so dive into that guide. Um, we will put the link in there. I will say that it was incredibly helpful to, to, separate out the stakeholders, who you are, are you in classroom, are you trying to make change on a district level, and the working questions. It's it's very workbooky. I love all the resources, and the assessment is a great way to just say, where are we at? How can we get started? How can we move at the pace we need to move? But equity has been at the forefront of a lot of the pandemic, um, not only in the classroom, but in ed tech in particular. And I'm wondering for the, for the ed tech side of the people listening, they have been saying, okay, I have a tool and here's how it can help with equity and access. How do you have any advice for them around like not how to position, but I just feel like there's this moment that sometimes the nature of tech and education is that it sometimes exacerbates the the have and have nots because the business model is they have to make money. And sometimes more districts are wealthier than others. Sometimes more parents are wealthier than others. So the tech that gets purchased sometimes further exacerbates the gap. So how do you, what do you want to say to tech people trying to be mindful of this, right? right. Um, but at the same time, they know that people are, you know, districts are, are caring about this more so than ever. And how do they show that their tool does 
help with all learners? This is like 10 million questions in one. So pick maybe 0.5 of what I asked you. <laughs> I, mean, I think the, the tools and the ed tech programs that I've seen and I've used and I think are most successful are the ones that really work with teachers to make sure that they have that value in the classroom. And that it's something that the kids can really use and that they develop those really concrete teacher materials around how they could be most effective. Uh, so you know, don't forget, you know, your teachers are your stakeholders and they've got really great insights and make sure you listen to them. I understand that districts don't always have, you know, no district has an unlimited budget. I also realize that you're always paying with something. You're either monetarily paying or there's usually a data piece or an advertising piece. Like there's always some sort of payment. There's no like real free, I don't think. But districts need to then decide, you know, what's the real value? And I mean, there's going back to my professional development days, there was nothing more terrifying than when a district would say, here's our list of 300 apps that our teachers can pull from. And it's like, how do you get through all of that? And I always like to streamline down and be like, okay, I can use four or I can use five. And to think about what are those real high leverage points? And that's where districts need to work with their teachers and say, what are the things that you really see of value? And then make those investments there. And I think that might be dependent on every district's different. Age groups are different. You know, what's great at elementary school may not be the best thing at the high school level. So I think that was a non-answer. No, and I, I think that it's a very good non-answer because it's really hard. But I, I do hope for everyone in EdTech listening is just ask your leadership around that. Like, what do we really feel about equity? How do we back up what we're saying about equity? And how do we make sure that we're really helping? And like you said, adding in teachers as stakeholders as much as possible. And, and what I love, what you said is really looking at, okay, we want to teach something. We have an objective. How does tech complement that? It's never tech first. It's never shiny bells and whistles and getting kids about, excited about something that really doesn't have anything to do with learning. So, and another thing you said that was really applicable to, to ed tech, especially as they think about developing all these features, is just make it simple. Make those easy wins happen as quick as possible. And, you know, kids can learn on top of that. But if it's not simple and easy and the teachers have to learn a ton side by side with the, with the students, it's not going to work. Oh. <laughs> no. I, there, I can't, I, it. It was such a great app. I can no longer remember the name of it, but there was an app years ago that made these incredible, like interactive ebook kind of things. It was super sophisticated and it was so impossible to use. I can't remember now what it was called, but that's, you know, that's the thing. Sometimes simple, simple is better or streamlined is better. So yeah, don't uh, always need everything. <laughs> Well, last question, you have given us a ton to think about. And I, I think part of this episode was more to be thought provoking, give you the tools for you to navigate this complex question on equity yourself, whether that be yourself as a classroom educator, someone in the district or in ed tech of, gosh, we are a big piece of this puzzle. How can we help? How can we talk with other ed tech companies? So it's, it's thought provoking, right? <laughs> so we don't have all the answers. We have a lot of data. We, we know what we see in our gut and our experience, but this is also for you to say, okay, I feel empowered. So the last question for you, Beth, is just totally switching gears is a lot of the times we like to ask our guests, 
curious, just how do you personally keep inspiration going every day is it's hard in a pandemic you're doing some awesome things that are very mission driven i'm like i can't believe this is your job but it, everybody has this feeling of sometimes burnout especially isolation how do you keep your energy going how do you keep your passion going are there podcasts you said you don't listen to podcasts no so, um are there books you're reading some tv shows you're binging do you do puzzles or run <laughs> I mean, I read an insane amount, but I, you know, I took up stand-up paddleboarding um, nice. years ago, and like, I have a group that I go with. I mean, we paddle all winter. We put dry suits on and we go. I find that that's really a great way just to clear my head. I get really antsy when it's been like ten days and I haven't been on the water. So, wow, I, that, I didn't know that about you. Yeah. I think for me, uh, kayaking did the same. Where I would tell people it's like my natural Prozac. I would just go out in the water yeah. and everything would just like fall away. Mm-hmm. You know, and you just hear the water lapping and you hear the seagulls. And for us, we have the harbor seals that are like kind of barking at each other. And it's just everything else goes away. And that's awesome. So I, I, for all of you that do not have the water near you, think about something that you like doing that might just make things disappear and make you in the present moment. Because there's so much fast pace and there's always more we can do. Um, our last episode, we talked with um, an educator, Tracy, and she talked about just that guilt of not ever doing enough as an educator and how she said yes to everything and everything and everything until she got burned out. And she said to herself, my kids deserve a non-burned out teacher. So I've got to say yes to myself. Mm-hmm. So thank you for sharing that, Beth. Um, I know you have so many more resources. Everybody who are trying to take notes, we do have you covered. So our show notes, if you go to leoneconsultinggroup.com backslash 15. So it's our entire name, Leone Consulting Group with two Gs backslash 15. This will have the show notes. You can listen to this podcast. We'll even have a transcript and more importantly, all of the resources. So including that great guide that's free. So Beth, thank you so much for spending time with us today and talking about all things equity, even if it's incredibly complex and nuanced and moving and crazy ways that we're just trying to figure out what are those trends and what are those what are those spotlights that we can shine that we know are truly working and then lean into that like you said so thank you it's been a pleasure Uh, you do so much to help students and educators throughout your career and i don't think you probably get thanked enough so i want (laughs) to thank you for all of what you do it feels like people like you should eventually get this like lifetime achievement award (laughs) just like Hey, I'm here for the kids. I'm here. Let's let's do this. So thank you from the bottom of our hearts for sharing your wisdom with us. Well, thank you so much for having me. Yeah. All right. And to our listeners, I know that you have a ton of options out there um, in terms of podcasts. A new podcast comes out every single day. And I just can't thank you enough for spending time and listening to us and learning alongside us. As you can see that we don't have all the answers. We have a lot of questions. We've got some resources to explore together. So I hope you walked away with at least one thing that you can do or just think about differently. You know, think about that comment that she said about makerspaces. Like that blew me away. So I, I want you to f- think about and reflect on the mind shifts that may have occurred or one or two things that you might do differently. So again, we will see you all next time on all things marketing and education. Thank you so much for listening to us. Take care, everyone. 
Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode. If you liked what you heard and want to dive deeper, you can visit leoneconsultinggroup.com backslash podcasts for all show notes, links, and freebies mentioned in each episode. And we always love friends, so please connect with us on Twitter at Leone Group. If you enjoyed today's show, go ahead and click the subscribe button to be the first one notified when our next episode is released. We'll see you next week on all things marketing and education.